We are kicking off our new series, uh, fall series, one that we'll be going through up until January on the life of Joseph. Now, uh, what's fascinating about this story is that it appeals to almost everyone in some way, shape, or form. Matter of fact, it appealed to uh, the son of a church organist as well as this law student who came together and wrote a 15-minute cantata on this uh, very story in the 1960s. And it became so popular and had so much success that it began to grow and was expanded and grew and grew and grew until it became the musical known as Joseph and the, and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which many of us are familiar with. And it has some great songs in there that really stick to you. And the one that really sticks to me is the Go, 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 Joseph, you know it, they say. Hang on now, Joseph, you'll make it someday. Remember that song? Some of you are familiar with the song. It's, it's a great song, and it sticks to you. And when I hear it, I'm, I'm just, I can't get it out of my head. And the first time I saw the musical was actually in Chicago, and I saw Donny Osmond performing the part of Joseph. And honestly, I'd grown up in church, but I hadn't really heard the story or really knew it well. And I remember watching the musical going, I'm not sure if it involves Pharaoh acting like Elvis, but I'm getting the point of this story. If you, if you watch it, it's a little crazy, some of the stuff that they brought into it. But there's something about the story of Joseph that really draws us in. Because here we have this young man who is, is an, really an innocent in, in, in almost every sense of the term, that he, he loves God, but yet he, is, uh, he has sibling rivalry going on in his home, and he is, uh, there's so much jealousy for him. And we know this, for many that do know the story, we know that they, his brothers were jealous. They wanted to kill him. They ended up uh, selling him into slavery, and he worked in the household of Potiphar and worked his way up until he was like the head steward. And then Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph and, and tried to really seduce him. And he rejected her advances, but then she falsely claims that he tried to take advantage or tried to rape her. And then uh, he is arrested and put into prison. Um, and, and then while in prison, he encounters a, a baker and the wine uh, steward and uh, interprets their dreams. And eventually he is released where he becomes the prime minister of all of Egypt and ends up supplying for his family in their time of need. And it, it's a great story. It's a great story of redemption, and it's a great example for us to look to for many different things on how to persevere, how to uh, stand fast in, uh, in truth, how to resist temptation. But for us to really truly understand the story, I think we need to examine more of the details of his life. Because even when I saw the musical when I was a younger man, and I remember seeing, I, don't under, I wasn't familiar with the Bible. I mean, I'd been in church, I'd heard a lot of stories, but that's one that didn't make it all into the pulpit all that much. But the more that I have studied his life, the more that the details become very similar to what many of us deal with on a daily basis. We, de- we may not deal with our brothers or siblings trying to kill us or <laughs> selling us into slavery. I hope we've never had to deal with that. Uh, but there is sibling animosity. There is the dealing with temptation and injustice. And how do you respond to that? How do you deal with and and follow God in your family? 
And, and today, as we're going to examine Joseph's life, I want us to really begin to set the stage for what we're going to be going through for the next several months, as we will be, in subsequent weeks, examining different episodes in Joseph's life. My goal today is to really uh, set us forth in a trajectory of Joseph's life so that we can see how we can relate to him and, and see how God has used his life to relate to to us and speak to us how we can live in our era and in our time, how we can resist temptation, how we can deal with sibling rivalry, how we can trust in the Lord when it seems that everything is stacked against us and things don't seem to go the way that we felt they were supposed to go. So let's, let's pause then to ask God to bless our time together as we jump into this very wonderful story. Heavenly Father, we come before you now asking you to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you for what you have done in him and what you did through him and how you have enabled him to be an example for countless generations. So Lord, today, may that truth still resound in our hearts and may his life echo through the corridors of time, resulting in the great a song of redemption that we all might hear and fall in love with as we seek to truly understand what it means to be a follower of you as we look to Joseph's life. So Lord, be in our time today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to jump right into this passage. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now, before we get into Joseph's life, we have to start and understand Joseph's family, which means understanding his dad, Jacob. And we can see that Jacob, it starts off with Jacob, and then it says in verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Now, when we look at this, we can see that Joseph is a story about a pretty messed up family. I mean, we have the tendency to look at the families in Scripture and put halos on them, when the reality is is they're much more human than that. And their lives, in many ways, parallel the experiences that we have in ours. Rarely does the ideal happen within Scripture. There's sibling animosity. There's rape. There's violence. There's injustice. There's jealousy and envy. There's, there's uh, gluttony. There's, uh, there's so many different things that are going on in a family dynamic. And there are some pretty messed up families in Scripture, and this is one of the most messed up. Now, how did it get messed up? Now, we can see for Jacob, and I'm going to give you some background into Jacob's life, it began with a chaotic upbringing. It was a chaotic upbringing. We have a tendency to parent the way we were parented, and for Jacob, it was pretty true. His upbringing was, was completely chaotic. Now, if you remember the story of Jacob, that he had a twin brother. His name was Esau, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first with Jacob grasping his heel. And that's what the word name Jacob means, he who grasped the heel. Also means deceiver. And Jacob lived up to that, uh, that name uh, throughout his lifetime. He was a great deceiver. But he grew up in this family where he had a, a brother who was kind of the go-getter. He was the outdoorsman. He was the hunter. He was a man's man, kind of an Ernest Hemingway type of figure. 
That's who Esau is. But Jacob is the guy that likes to be at home. He's more the kind of the effeminate one. He doesn't like to, to go out. He's the mama's boy of the two of them. And, Je- and Esau is really loved by his dad, Isaac. I, he, Isaac looks at him and goes, that's my boy right there. And Jacob's like, hey, dad. He's like, yeah, you go over there. You know, you, you go be with your mom. And so this is a, a, a Jacob is, is kind of a, he is, he's a guy that doesn't like to go out. He likes to stay around the tents, as the scripture says. Now his dad favored his brother over him, which caused some problems, but it didn't matter because he knew he was his mother's favorite. Jacob had heard the story about his birth and, and heard about Esau's birth. And, and, and he, he, uh, he knew, though, that Esau was the man's man, but Esau wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. And Jacob was a pretty smart guy. And so Esau comes home, and he's famished one day. Jacob offers him a meal on one condition. Give me your birthright. I want the right of the firstborn. We're born at the same time. We're brothers. We're a few minutes apart. You're ahead of me. But you know what? I want the right of the firstborn. Esau goes, what does that mean to me right now? I'm hungry. Give me a bowl of food. And he says, okay, just swear to me. And he goes, okay, 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 okay. And he, he does and ends up taking his birthright, which plays, uh, plays a part later in their life. And in that culture, that's a very significant thing to be the oldest child, especially the oldest son, because it came with certain responsibilities and certain privileges as well as an inheritance that was greater than everyone else. Esau didn't really understand that. But there's deception, there's animosity between these two brothers. And it comes to uh, a head later when Jacob, or excuse me, when Isaac starts to get sick, he real, he's, he's now going to bless his children, which is a very significant act in Jewish culture. When you bless your child, you are setting them on a trajectory with God, and God will bless them. And it's almost a prophecy of sorts where you're conveying something that's going to happen. It might be rights. It might be honor. It could be prosperity. It could be power. It could be some type of significance or legacy. So this blessing was an extremely important thing within Jewish culture. And so the time came to give the blessing. And he uh, told his son Esau, who was to receive this blessing, to go off and prepare some food for him, the kind that he likes. And so his wife, Rebecca, sees this. She doesn't want Esau to receive the blessing. She wants her favorite child to receive the blessing, which is Jacob. So she comes up, concocts this plan, where she then... uh, tells him, she she goes, I'm going to prepare his favorite food. I want you to take it to him. I want you to put these skins on your your arms because you're you're not a very hairy guy. Again, kind of an effeminate, not real hairy. Esau, though, looks like he, he rolled, he looks like a human chia pet. I mean, this guy is just really hairy guy. Even his name means red, hairy. He's, he's a hairy guy. But Jacob's not. So he puts these skins on, goes before his dad with the food before Esau can get back. Jacob, I mean, Isaac recognizes he can't see. He's, he's going blind, but he recognized the voice really isn't the one of Esau. But he says, let me touch you just to make sure. Because you don't sound like Esau. You, you sound like Jacob. But let me touch you. So he touches him and he's like, yep, you're, you're a hairy beast <laughs> like Esau is. So he says, uh, so you are. And he, he blesses him. And then uh, soon, no sooner then than Jacob leaves his father's presence Esau shows up with the food that he had prepared for his dad. 
And he says, here, eat. And he goes, what do you mean, eat? I just ate. You were just here. I'm full. And he's like, no, no. I, here, bless me. Bless me. I'm, he's like, what do you mean, bless you? I just blessed you. No, that's me. Well, wait a minute. That, I must have been your brother. And he, he's angry. And, and, and Esau is extremely angry because he missed out on the blessing. Now, he receives a secondary blessing, but nowhere to the level of the blessing that Jacob received. So he hated his brother. So that, caught, that, that relationship caused them to separate. Jacob needed to get out of there. So he flees his brother because he's afraid that his brother is going to try to kill him. Now, this is a messed up family. Again, I don't know if you've ever wanted to kill your sibling before, but this is real serious stuff. Like, he really wants to kill his brother. So he flees back to his mother's land, and he encounters Laban, uh, his uncle. And Laban's... Um, Actually, it's his uncle. And then his younger sister, which is uh, Leah. I mean, his sisters, which are actually his nieces, excuse me, um, are uh, Rachel and Leah. And he sees the sisters. Leah's not very attractive. She's the older of the sisters. He's not really drawn to her, but Rachel is gorgeous. And he interacts with her, and he sees her. And he says, he goes to Laban, and he goes, you know what? I'd like her as my wife. I don't have anything, though. I'm new to this country, and I have nothing. And he says, here's the deal. Here's the bride price for my daughter. You work seven years for me, and then you can have her as your wife. He's like, it's not a bad deal. So he works seven years, comes back to Laban. He goes, it's time for me to, and he actually says this, come into my wife, engage with her to, to engage sexually. I want, want her now. I've spent my seven years. It's time for the wedding. Laban goes, okay orchestrates the big feast, and then uh, he does a switcheroo. And maybe there was some alcohol involved. Maybe there wasn't some, the lights weren't very bright. We don't know. Maybe she was veiled. A lot of things could be in place there. He goes into the wedding tent to consummate the union and has a great time, wakes up the next morning, and there's Leah looking at him. (laughs) And it says that she was weak-eyed. I've often wondered if she was cross-eyed. And he looked up and he saw her cross-eyed looking at him and probably like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm sure he ran out of that tent pretty quick. And he goes to Laban. He's like, what'd you do to me? You have to wonder if Laban's smiling to himself. He's like, well, it's not customary. And you can see just the the smile on his face. He's like, it's not customary for the older daughter to marry before the older. So you know what? Finish off Leah's week. There was a bridal week that went on. And then after that, then you can marry Rachel in turn for another seven years of service. Because you already pay the bride price for Leah, but now you've got to pay the bride price for Rachel. Now Jacob, who had been the deceiver, is now being the, he's the one that's being deceived. So the irony's not lost here. It's a pretty amazing story that's going on. And so he is the recipient of a crooked deal of a crooked deal. I mean, we already saw that they had a chaotic upbringing, Jacob did, and then he's a recipient of a crooked deal. Now, all of this is going to play a part on how he interacts with his family later. Because remember, as we are parented, we have a way then to parent. And those experiences that we have play a part in how we look at the world. And it's going to be projected on his children and thus then affecting Joseph. So we're going to see that. Now that led, so Jacob then has now these two wives. Leah, which he doesn't like, she's not loved, but he engages in her conjugal rights with her, and then he has Rachel that he does love. 
Now, there was already sibling rivalry because they're sisters. And again, we talked about envy a few weeks ago, and we actually highlighted this specific story because we see that envy, envy, as we called it, is an area code sin. We envy those that we're closest to or in competition with. And these two sisters all had massive competition. Leah, I'm sure, didn't like the fact that her sister was much prettier than she was. But Leah is the oldest. And yet Leah becomes, uh, has children right away and has several of them, while Rachel is childless, which is a huge mark of shame in that culture. And so this competition is going on. There's envy going on. There's animosity going on. And then they end up having basically a baby-making contest is what is going on with these two. And it leads to this huge competition. I mean, there's competition among siblings, but sister wives went to a whole other level. The story goes like this. Jacob loved Rachel, but she couldn't have kids. While Leah was not loved, but she could have kids. Leah had four sons, one right after the other. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Jealous or envious of her sister's ability to have kids, Rachel took matters into her own hands and did what some had done in similar situations before her. In other words, she then finds a surrogate. So she takes her her. Uh, assistant, basically her handmaiden, and gives her, Bilhah, to Jacob as wife. And then any children that would be born to Bilhah would be considered to be Rachel's. So then Jacob, he's not contesting any of this. Uh, And so he gets her pregnant and she becomes like a secondary or second tier wife, uh, not on the level of Rachel and Leah. And so this, uh, she gets pregnant, and she has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Now, Leah, nervous that Rachel would steal her position as the uh, preeminent one in the tribe, gave her servant, Zilpah, to be a wife, and so that, uh, so that she would get pregnant, and she did. And she got pregnant and had a son named Asher. Now, after that, Leah gets pregnant again with two more times and bore him two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. Then finally, Rachel does get pregnant, and she bores Jacob another son, which is Joseph. He was the 11th son, the final piece in their competition until Benjamin came along several years later, thus ending the competition because she would actually die giving birth to Benjamin. Now, needless to say, this competition then became a massive conflict. It spilled, not only was it going on between the sisters, but it spilled over to the sons. Now, here's what we have here. You have 11 sons. The one daughter comes, her name is Dinah, but she doesn't play a huge factor in this story um, until much later down the line. But we have these 11 sons. Now, here's the significance about Joseph. Joseph is the firstborn son of his favorite wife. Firstborn son of his favorite wife. Matter of fact, it's the wife he wanted all along. He wasn't anticipating Leah or Bilhah or Zilpah. She was the one that he wanted from the very beginning. So that child from that union is going to receive a great deal more emphasis and prestige. Because in his mind, Jacob should be, I mean, Joseph should be the firstborn. And so he shows his favoritism. Remember, he was the favorite of his mother. And now he is showing favoritism to Joseph by constructing for him the coat of of many colors. And so this, can you, so you can imagine being playing around as a kid when you're seeing Joseph get more of more helpings at dinner. 
When you see Joseph getting away with more things than you get away with. When you see people in the tribe giving more deference or honor to him, there's going to be some frustration that, that comes up. And, and just like my kids, when some, one kid gets more than the other kid, that kid says, that's not fair. That's not fair. And so they're looking at their brother going, that's not fair. Why does he get that and I don't? So there's some competition and massive conflict that spilled out now from the sisters into the brothers. And they don't like Joseph. And it's exacerbated, and, or the conflict is fanned into flame by a costly gift. A costly gift. And that's the coat of many colors. Now, some scholars actually believe that it was not a coat of many colors. They, some, uh, actually, one professor that I had who was on the NIV translation committee, he says that it's not a coat of many colors, but a coat of many palms, which meant it was twice as long as any other garment. Now, it could go either way. Most scholars say it's in this. He even said he was rare. But I think uh, both them and he drew an attention to the coat that we all miss. It meant that he got double the inheritance that his siblings got. That was the visible representation that he was the favorite son and that he was going to be the preeminent one in the tribe, the leader of the tribe, and everything that Jacob had would pass to Joseph and they would all get the leftovers. So that made a little bit more frustrating. I mean, think about Reuben is the oldest of the family and he's seeing his little brother get all the honor that he feels he should deserve, he feels he should get. So there's some massive sibling rivalry that's going on. And when they see that, it just burns. Every time they, I mean, they could look at him before, they didn't like him. Now when they like him, they're like, I mean, now when they see him, I hate that coat. I hate him. I can't stand that little booger. Think about it. How much do you have, how many of you have a little brother that annoyed you when you were a child? How many of you were that little brother that annoyed you? Now, let's take it to the nth degree. Now, let's say that your little brother gets everything. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be really frustrated. And the brothers were extremely frustrated. It was fanned into, fame, fanned into flame, this frustration, uh, by a costly gift. Now, the story of Joseph is one of a messed up family. And I think we should take courage from that. That if God can work through this messed up family... He can work through your messed up family. Think about it. We all think my family's really messed up. You don't know my uncle. You don't know my brother. You don't know what I saw when I was a kid. You don't know what I went through, what, I, what my brothers tried to do. My brothers tried to kill me. And Joseph's like, I hear you, brother. <laughs> so we see then that Scripture is very real in the life that it presents to us. And and we can see that if God can speak and use and work through that situation, he can work through yours. I've had people apologize to me sometimes because they said, well, I wasn't raised in this environment. I don't know. I mean, God can work through any type of environment that's not the ideal. God can make a straight path with a crooked stick. He can do great things, even through your family and your situation, working through you. Don't think that you have to have the ideal. God is diverse, and his power knows no end, and he is not bound. And he can work through your family, no matter how it started, no matter what it looks like. He can still work, despite the sins of those around us. Now, the story of Joseph is one of a messed up family. And if you were to look at Joseph through all this, you'd say, this kid 
is going to be messed up. There's certain kids that you see and you see their family and you go, this kid is doomed. You ever seen that? That one kid that's in the neighborhood or you saw at school and you're like, I don't know, God's going to have to take a hold of this child. And in many ways, I think you wonder that with Joseph. If you were to just look at the family dynamic, you go, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But we see that God works through Joseph. God is speaking to Joseph. So we see that the story is not just one of a messed up family, but it's one of a miraculous faith. He has a miraculous and incredible faith. Even as a young man, I can't imagine going through everything that he went through. I mean, he was 17 years old when this story kicks off, and he has these dreams. And his brothers sell him into slavery, domestic servitude. And then he becomes, in essence, a refugee where he is now leaving the land of Canaan. He's going into a foreign land with a foreign people. He is a slave to them, not speaking the language, not knowing the customs, not knowing the traditions. He would, I would think he would want to curse God just for that alone. I mean, I would have had a hard time just with the brother thing. And yet here he is. He's not cursing God. He is trusting in God. And he goes into Potiphar's house, works his way up. He says, I'm going to make the best out of this situation. And he does, and wonderful things begin to happen. But then Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to him. She lusts after him. She wants to, she wants to sleep with him. So she sets it up. The, she sets the stage, gets all the servants out of the house so they can have a romantic rendezvous. And we know that Joseph rejects it. And then again, she falsely accuses him of rape because he had rebuffed her advances so many times she was tired of it. He is then arrested. And you'd think then he would curse God. God, what good is it to follow you? What good is it to be faithful to you? My brothers hated me. They sent me into this place. I mean, they sold me into slavery. They were going to kill me. They sold me into slavery, but now, now I'm in prison. And yet he still holds on. He still clings to his integrity in the middle of all of these things. It's a story of an incredible, miraculous faith. Now, there's some things here. I'd like to pause just from the story for a moment. I want to expand and take the story of Joseph into the New Testament for a moment, because we, should, we will see that Joseph is actually a preview of Christ. And here's what I mean by that. In Scripture, there's a thing called typology. You may not be familiar with this term. A type is anything that happens in the Old Testament, event or a person or something that is, happens, uh, that goes on, that foreshadows something that will find its complete fulfillment in the New Testament. For example, Noah, the story of Noah, the flood that occurred, is actually a type of baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, it says that baptism is a symbol of passing through the waters of judgment, just as the Noah going through the ark was a pass through the waters of judgment. So baptism is, a pa- is passing through the waters of judgment. It's a type. It was, it was to show something that would be greater seen later. And there's several types throughout Scripture. Even, even the exodus out of Egypt is a type of us. Again, it's also a type of baptism. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea, coming out of their old life, stepping into the new life. 
It's a type. There's several types throughout Scripture. And we see actually in uh, 1 Corinthians, we see Paul elaborating on one of these types where he talks about Moses striking the rock and all of, and water gushing out and all of the people drinking from that rock. And he actually tells us that rock was Christ, that we are drinking from him and finding our satisfaction in him. And there's all of these types throughout the Old Testament where God is embedding the story of Jesus and what was to come in the New Testament all over the Old Testament. I mean, it's everywhere. The Old Testament is pregnant with types, and I mean, they're just pointing to Jesus. It's embedded throughout the entire story. It's incredible when you really start studying it, when you start understanding it. And, and Joseph is a preview of Christ. How? Let me, let, me, let me draw it out for you. Joseph is a type of Christ in several ways. Joseph's brothers did not believe him, and they hated him. In Genesis 37, 4 through 5, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. John, John 7, the Jews did not believe in him. They hated him. John 15, Joseph's brothers rejected his right to rule. Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as their ruler. Joseph's brothers conspired against him, and the Jews conspired against Jesus. Joseph was stripped of his garments. Jesus was stripped of his clothes. Joseph was sold for silver, as was Jesus, Matthew 26, 15. Joseph's own brothers did not recognize him, and the Jews did not recognize the Messiah. The same, it was, the Jews did not recognize Jesus. Joseph was tempted and did not sin. Jesus was tempted and did not sin. Joseph was bound, Genesis 39, 30, as was Jesus, Matthew 27, 2. Joseph was condemned with two criminals, Genesis 40, 2 and 3. Jesus was crucified with two criminals, Luke 23 through 32. One of the criminals in Joseph's was exalted, and the other one was executed. One of the two criminals that Jesus was crucified with believed in Jesus at the end of life, and Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise, while the other one is condemned. It's incredible. Joseph's brothers bowed their knee to him, and at the end of time, every knee will bow to Jesus. Joseph was 30 years old when he was called into service, Genesis 41, 46. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, Luke 3, 25. Joseph was in prison based on false charges, Genesis 39, 19, and 20. Jesus had false witnesses who testified against him in Mark 14, 56. Joseph went to prison, and Jesus went to Sheol, into the depths. Joseph was exalted and given power over all Egypt next to Pharaoh. Jesus was exalted and given all power over everything next to the Father. God planned the suffering of Joseph in advance to save many, Genesis fifty twenty one, And he planned the suffering of Jesus to save many, Matthew twenty six twenty eight. And these are just some of the ways that Joseph is like Jesus. There are several more. Some even estimate there are as many as high as 60. It's incredible how the story of Joseph points to Jesus. It's massive. So we see that the story of Joseph is one of a miraculous faith. It's a preview of Christ. But it's also a portrait of Christian living. How so? Joseph goes through tremendous suffering and remains faithful in the middle of it. And then he's exalted. That's how we are to live. We are not guaranteed a carefree, temptation-free life. We will be misunderstood and rejected. 
we are guaranteed to suffer. Matter of fact, we see that in the book of Acts, where, it's, where Paul says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or in First Timothy, endure suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We have this tendency to think that suffering is an aberration to the Christian life. Just like when we experience pain at our home, we might touch something hot, our tendency is to react because something is wrong. But our suffering that we go through in life doesn't always indicate that something is wrong in our spiritual life, although it might. Sometimes it indicates we are doing right. As James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because it tests your faith. It grows your faith. It matures your faith. It deepens your faith. We look to Joseph to see how we can live, how we can resist temptation, how we can remain faithful. Many people are great followers of Christ when there is no suffering, but when suffering comes, it separates true believers from false ones. And suffering is coming. It's already here and it's getting worse in our own country. It's all over the world. It's in North Korea. There was actually, this was released, this actually just on Friday, this was released. In North Korea, if a believer is caught worshiping, running a non-sanctioned church, or carrying around non-sanctioned religious material, they are arrested and hauled away to political prison camps, which is nothing new. However, these are new because this is now coming out. There are incidents of individuals being hung on a cross over a fire, crushed under a steamroller, herded off bridges, and trampled underfoot. This is what's going on in North Korea if you are a Christian right now. In Nigeria in June, a pastor's wife was accused of blaspheming the prophet Muhammad, and she was stabbed to death by a mob. The same in Pakistan, where at Easter there was a church that was bombed. You're seeing the church in Iran, people being executed, um, I mean, all the time. And one right after another, another believer is stepping up again and again and again. In our own country, it's, it's a little bit more subtle. It's not so outright yet. It's happening through legislation. We're now in Massachusetts and in Iowa, if a transgendered person comes into our service and it's a public, some type of public event that we're doing, if we do not allow them to use the bathroom of his or her choice or refer to them in the pronoun that he or she desires to be referred to, that we could be arrested and or fined. This is in Iowa and Massachusetts. It's not here yet, but it will get here. You think, well, that's not that big a deal. When is it going to be a big deal for the church in America to wake up? What is it going to take? I, I, I've been asking myself that for a long time. Because I've seen the, the enemy is at the gates, and the church just seems to be like, eh, well, let's just watch Netflix today. I'll do my workout. I don't need to go to church today. I'm just going to sleep. Persecution is at the door. It's going to get worse. I fully expect in my lifetime that I could be arrested. Did you know that ISIS came out with a kill list in June with 15,000 American Christians on it? Some people I know. I know them. I know their name. And they have their name on it. And they are, now ISIS is calling for rogue and sleeper agents to wake up, go and kill these people. These are people that I know. I personally know them. What, what more is it going to take for people to wake up? I mean, what, social media, Instagram, Snapchat? 
I mean, even this past week, I don't even know if you saw what's going on with the internet, that now the United States, which has been an overseeing body with the internet, is talking about giving it over to an international commission where we have no control over what will be said. You, you as, a, as a church, we may not be able to say anything about our faith because some of the people on these commissions do not have freedom of speech, and we are seceding control of this. This is what's going on. We're now, free speech is itself being limited. You can't say that someone's a sinner. You can't say that God, you can't make anyone feel bad. How much more do people need to wake up to what is going on? I am amazed at the church of God that could stop any of this if they just get off their stupid butt. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, I, I, I tear my hair out. I came home last night. My wife was like, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm mad at God's church. Because they're too busy watching Game of Thrones and they don't pray. We talk about it all the time. When are people going to pray? When are they going to wake up? What's it going to take to wake you up? To take you and get you spiritually to care about what's going on the people around you? What has to get you angry? I mean, Satan is killing you softly. You are in a boiling pot. You are that frog, and he's turning up that water, and he is suffocating people, I mean, of faith all the time. Where is your zeal? Where is your desire? Where is your drive? Where is your hope in Christ? Where is that joy? Where is it? Where is that desire to live a pure life, to tell people about who Jesus is, to get on your knees, to fast and pray. Because you know what? We can have all these great things, but they don't change a heart and mind. And I have been so convicted in my heart. I was reading this past week. I shared it with my wife last night. Because God acts in proportion to the people's faith. You want to know why people aren't being saved? Because people don't pray. Period. You're not going to be won by methods. You're not going to be warned by light shows. These are great stuff. But until the Spirit of God intercedes in a person's heart and a mind and convicts them of their sin, they will never be saved. They will only want the morality, the teaching, the feel good. But you know what? That doesn't get you into heaven. You cannot get into heaven unless you are born again by the Spirit of Almighty God. You have to be transformed, regenerated. God has to awaken and change your heart to take you from being a sinner to being a saint. It's never about being good enough. You cannot be good enough. Never be good enough. God shows us the penalty and the price for sin. He put Jesus on the cross for you to show that he is going to be done with sin. This world is going to pass away. He wants to show us and give us life eternal. And we're wondering why Netflix doesn't work. I'm a little mad. Especially when I see what my brothers and sisters all over the world are going through. And then I look at the American church. And I'm like, if I was a believer in Iran... And I have to meet in secret. And I look at some of us in our church and I go, they can't even get out of bed and it's got complete freedom. Something's not right about that. Something's not right about that. Let's go on. Joseph gives us a portrait of Christian living. And I have to say, by looking at that guy's life, it scares me. Because I ask myself, 
could I be so faithful in the midst of great hostility? I hope so. I'm afraid I won't, but I hope so. See, Joseph also helps us see the plan of God. The plan of God. Notice Joseph's dreams in verse 5 through 9. Joseph had a dream, and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They already didn't like him. This made it worse. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers. If I was him, I don't know if I would tell my brothers. But he does. Behold, I have a dream, another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, Jacob, this imagery isn't lost on him. And he actually says, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? See, what he was showing him here is the plan of God on what was going to happen. God shows him his future. His brothers and parents would bow down to him in the future. God had a plan for him. You know that God has a plan for you too. And we have to trust in that. Joseph knew that God was with him, and he knew that God showed him a picture of what would happen in the future, but he needed to trust. Joseph didn't know everything that God had intended for him, and I'm pretty sure that he didn't see being sold into slavery, being a domestic servant, refugee, trafficked, or being put into prison on false charges in that plan. But God used it. It was his plan. You know, when God's plan comes to you, we have this tendency to think that God's plan is only going to be great stuff. That's a naive faith. God is going to bring difficulty your way because he wants to do something in you. And let me tell you something. It's not going to be easy. When you ever have tea, and you put a bag of tea into just water, the flavor doesn't come out. It only comes out when the water's hot. That's where the character and the aroma of Christ comes out is when you go through difficulty. That's where it really is. And any other type of faith that says to you that those problems are not right and God just wants the blessing, then you need to get away because that's not a biblical, holistic faith or a full understanding of the full counsel of God's word. We have to understand that. God's not calling us to a life of sin. He's calling us to give up that sin. I mean, what's God calling you to do? And, 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 and don't think of terms of, I, I mean, sometimes we have this tendency to think so big that we can't see the small things. I mean, again, I'm sure Joseph was like, God, you've called me to do this. And he's looking at prison going, how is this going to accomplish that? I mean, have you ever thought that? God called you to go to prison? What if God called you to go to prison? Is that the end of the plan of God? Or is that just the beginning of it? What is that? What is he calling you to do? What, what, what is God's plan for your life? How does he want you to live? 
How does he want you to give? How does he want you to be generous? Does he want you, I mean, it could be small things. Maybe God is calling you to place your faith in Christ. Maybe you haven't done that yet. Maybe you've been around Christians for a while, and you know the lingo, but yet God doesn't have your heart yet. You have to give your life to Christ. Maybe that's it. Maybe you need to take that next step of faith. Maybe it means stepping into the baptismal waters and saying, I'm going to identify with Christ Maybe it's saying, I'm going to join with a greater body of Christ. Maybe I'm going to, I'm going to get into a small group, or maybe I'm going to get into a, <coughs> a Bible study, or I'm going to step into some type of service, or maybe I'm going to give up this sin, or maybe I'm going to... What, what is it? What is that plan of God? What is God's plan for your life? What is he calling you to be? What is he calling you to do? What is he directing you to? What, what circumstances that you would say, well, God might be calling me to this, but I just can't do that right now. Maybe it's that exact thing that he's brought into your life where he wants to show his plan. I don't know. I don't know what he's calling you to do. He might be calling you to give up all of your possessions, just selling it all and giving it to the poor. Maybe God wants, to, maybe God wants you to go overseas. Maybe God wants you to just go across the street The question is, is whatever God has revealed of his will to you, are you trusting in that? We think that God wants to do great things through us, but we aren't willing to go through the suffering to get there. Suffering goes to Christianity as wet goes with water. Do you know why we can suffer? Because he has guaranteed us a marvelous future. That's the next point in your notes. I'm going to go through these rather quickly. He's given us a marvelous future, but it's only for those who love him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of a man of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I have a pretty active imagination. I can imagine what an eternity's like. And God says, No, you've not even come close to what I have for you. He, he was showing Joseph a future that was to go through it, but he had to go through suffering in order to get there. We may not have his future, but God has guaranteed us, New Testament believers in his word, that if we truly love him, that he will give us a marvelous future. And no, notice this. It's prepared for everybody. No, those who love him. Only for those who truly love him. <coughs> and in order for that to happen... I mean, we can't love God if we do not believe in him and place our faith and trust in him. And belief takes faith. You have to have faith in God and his plan for your life. The future can only come by faith. Not everyone has faith. I find that when God reveals his will, there are a few different ways we can respond. And we can see that in Joseph, Joseph's brother's response to his dreams. See, look at verse 5. Now, Joseph had had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. See, they turned against it. What God had revealed to Joseph, they turned against. See, when we encounter God's will in what he is trying to show us, we can turn against it. We usually do when we say it's suffering. Maybe that's not what God has for me. I've seen that with spouses where they say, I don't love him anymore. God doesn't want me not to be in a marriage where there's no love and I'm not happy. Really? Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Because you know what? God could care less really about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. And people are like, I don't like that. That's why the path is broad that goes to destruction and narrow is the road to eternal life because it means suffering. It means dealing with difficulty. It means clinging to God, not our external circumstances. I know that's easy to say and not, it's hard to do. 
But we see here, they turned against that. They didn't want that. That's not what they wanted. That's not what they envisioned the plan of God to be because it further just gave Joseph credit. And rather than submit to it and be a part of it, they turned against it. See, we want the blessing, but we don't want the burdens. We want the press, but not the perseverance. We want the deliverance, but not the discipleship. When God calls us to himself, we have to give up everything in order to get everything. Whereas Jim Elliott, the martyred Wheaton graduate, who was a missionary who was actually killed by the very people he was trying to reach, said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He was no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. See, some turn against it, while others, just as, such as Jacob, just think about it. Just think about it. Look at verse 10 through 11. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. He didn't do anything about it. He just thought about it. See, while Jacob had a redeeming quality to thinking about what he heard, most of us do not. We think about it and do nothing. We hear it, are convicted by it, but we don't like what it means for us. The cost seems too great. We have to give up too much to follow, so we just let it sit there hoping it goes away like that cleaning project in the house or that bill on the table that we haven't paid yet. We can't think about it and do nothing. We have to act. Even just thinking about it and doing nothing is a form of rejection. And instead... We have to do what Joseph did, and that was to trust in it. We have to trust in God's plan, and he did. We can see that through his life. No matter what he went through, he continued to trust in God. His faith was unabated. In that song, Go, Go, Joseph, the narrator says this about his suffering. We've read the book, and you come out on top. If we trust in Christ, we will come out on top, but it takes faith. It takes trust in him, and that trust is, in, is not in God generically, but in the God of the Bible who showed his love for us in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for your sins and mine. He rose from the dead, which guarantees our salvation, but we have to trust in that first. Have you trusted in Christ? After believing in him, you must receive him as Lord and Savior of your life. Have you believed and received? Trusting in what he has done, do so today and you will be saved. Let's close our message time with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we've seen Joseph go through all the things that he's gone through with the messed up family, we do see a miraculous faith and a marvelous future. And Lord, we pray that we too might have that same miraculous faith, that the God who is working then is the same God who is working now. And Lord, you have used Joseph to not only show us a a portrait of the Christian life, but it's a preview of Christ and help us to see Christ and how we can live and how we can move and have our being. And Lord, please help us to trust in your plans, in your hand, even when it doesn't seem like you are there, but help us to rest in the knowledge of you. Increase our faith, grow us, and use us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.